Duff, um, a real pleasure to meet you. Where are you based? Where are you? Uh, well, it's lovely to be here, Jeff. Thank you. Right now, I'm in Hawaii on the island of Maui. I've, it's one of the places <laughs> I've never been. And um, What? No, I know, I know. It's, it's, it's just that and New Zealand, two places I've always wanted to go and never quite got there. But, but never mind. have you been there your whole life? Were you born there or how did you get to? Um, I've had a few evolutions here. I lived here in 1985 before I went to Australia. Then I lived here in 1990 before I went back to the mainland, to Santa Barbara. And then I, I've lived here almost seven years now. I love to be in the ocean, probably like you. I like to be out in nature, interacting with the wildlife. And even though I was doing a lot of creative conservation work in Santa Barbara, I missed being in the water, like with underneath the water. You know, some people love boating. I love being, you know, where it's a different world. It's a different world and um, there's nothing... You know, quite like it. But the cool thing, when you mention Hawaii and New Zealand, they're related because the New Zealanders, the Maoris, um, their ancestors are Hawaiians, so Polynesians. So um, there's a lot of similar words, a lot of similar practices with the elders. The kahunas are known as the Hawaiian elders. See, I love indigenous cultures. So I mix my dolphin work with indigenous cultures and modern day living. I didn't know. I didn't know. Fantastic. <laughs> so it. when you go, go to New Zealand, you'll see the Maoris there because they're, they're not like the Aboriginal elders. They really fought for their rights. So they have everything from Maori television. They own most of the fishing rights. Um, I learned a lot about the Maoris because I worked on a campaign to save the world's smallest and rarest dolphin, which is the New Zealand Maui. So Maui is the island that I live on. But because the New Zealanders and really the Maoris, they have the same folklore as the Hawaiian Polynesians. Fantastic. There you go. Wow. <laughs> Actually, just very briefly, the name Dove. I mean, how did you get were you, Is that from your parents or did you inherit <laughs> it or did you make it up? How did you get it? Um, okay, so this is what? A truth or, <laughs> truth or dare? <laughs> you don't have to tell me. No, no. We can move no, on actually, like. No, because people have asked me before, and this is the truth. Um, I spontaneously gave my hair away to children with cancer. And I wasn't planning on doing it. You know, at the time, this is before I lived in Santa Barbara. I went up to San Francisco and was visiting my mother and my younger brother. We were celebrating their birthday. Well, out on the streets of San Francisco, they had Buzz the Fuzz, which is a fundraiser for the San Francisco police force. So after dinner, we all went out onto the street. We're giving money to the police force. I was in awe watching, you know, police officers shave their head to raise money for Make-A-Wish and children with illnesses. And all of a sudden, the captain of the police force looked at me and said, would you donate your hair? Well, this time I had curled my hair. Normally, you know, I was the nature girl, always on my bike, never like doing anything to my hair, you know. I only started wearing like makeup when I started doing film work. But so at that moment, I was with my two nieces, my brother's daughters, and um, out of my mouth came, I would for a thousand dollars, meaning if they raised the thousand dollars to go to make a wish, that I would give my hair. So he got on the bullhorn within seven minutes flat. People were just pulling money out of their pocket. You know, people on the street passing by because they think, oh my gosh, a sacrificial lamb, right? Here's some woman because the, the captain had asked numerous people walking by, would you donate your hair? And they're all going, are you crazy? Right? And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, um, seven minutes flat, he raised $1,000. My younger brother was the first to give $20. I'm like, oh, great, Rick. Um, but then after, 
he raised the money. He looked at me and he says, you know, will you still donate your hair? And I said, well, it's my word. You know, I'd already given my word. And so he said, well, your hair is long enough. We can make a wig for a child with leukemia. So they cut it pretty short. And with all the other police officers, they were holding up mirrors. And I said, I don't want to look at a mirror. So I cut my hair short and then they shaved it. And the first sensation I had was wind on my head. And I was like, and it was like this bliss bubble came over me. And I was like, so happy for those few moments in my life. I didn't think about myself. I didn't think about how I was going to look. Um, I was thinking like this gesture was going to help someone with leukemia, right? That someone else was going to wear my hair. I don't know, for whatever reason, it made me super happy. Then they said, oh my gosh, we're going to make you, all the police officers wanted to take pictures. We're going to make you an honorary police officer. They gave me a shirt, a hat where legally I can't wear it out because you can't, you know, impersonate a police officer. So even though they made me an honorary police officer. So then, you know, my mother and my grandmother had already driven back up to Roseville, which is like a three hour drive from San Francisco. So I got on the phone, you know, after that whole ordeal, I was still in my bliss bubble, but I, I wanted to warn my mother. So I, I didn't still know what I looked like, right? So when I went to the parking structure, the guy treated me like I was a skinhead. You know, before he was like, oh, here's an open parking space. You know, before I was like, oh, can you take a picture of me, my family? And, you know, I was all excited. And he was just like, you know, really like grumpy. <laughs> so I called my mom and I said, um, you know, I gave my hair away. You did what? Um, I said, well, I, I shaved my head. And she says, I'll see you in the morning. So the next morning why i tell this story is because how i got the, the name dove the next morning was really the first time i actually saw myself in a mirror and i looked like i just come out of the hospital except i had eyebrows so i didn't really look like i had gone through cancer but i kind of looked that way and i came out and my grandmother who's still alive today she's 104 grandma beach i sat next to her on the couch and she came over and touched my head and she says now we can see your beautiful face that's all she said so that entire weekend i was with my mom and this it's like a retirement communities you know living people were like some of her friends were freaking out you know because i was going to all these you know out to lunch at the country club you know and with the shaved head you know and i was still in that bliss bubble and then people were, I could see people's fear on their face. Like a white woman with a shaved head is different from, in Europe, in Europe, I would probably be more accepted, but in America, no. And, you know, they were going, what's, what's wrong with your daughter? You know, to my mother, like off to the side. And then, but I was still so happy with my grandmother. So that weekend ended. And I remember swimming in the water and I could go faster. You know, like all these things were like new sensations. And it made me, you know, I started to walk in those footprints of like people who are lesbian, skinhead, military, and sick, you know, and when you don't have that opportunity again. So I'm driving back to Santa Barbara in my truck with my little dog. And then there was these rainbows in front of me. I know it's going to sound surreal, but all of a sudden from like up above in the sky, coming down into the car was like, your name should now be Dove. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like I'm arguing with God, you know, this like big voice. And I'm like, I can't change my name. You know, it's like people know me as, you know, Leah, I can't change it to Dove. And then it was like, that's what I heard, like this voice coming into the, the car. So it took me a year to actually change my name because my middle names were DJ. So that's why it's kind of like a weird experience. And I'm thinking maybe if everyone did a selfless act, God would talk to them more. You know, if like we really took a few moments out of our life to not think about ourselves, the outcome of what happens when we just give 
you know, but really those words that came out of my mouth about I would for a thousand, I didn't know where those came from. Like it wasn't like my way of thinking because I had no plan to give my hair away. So I think those kind of, I don't know if they're called paranormal, you know, miracles, you know, I've had God talk to me a couple other times, which is kind of doesn't really, you know, people go, I want the science. But when you're in like a prepared, like to a car accident where your car implodes and then you hear a voice right before the car employed, get ready. The car is going to explode. And then it happened. I mean like those kind of, yeah, it's like, <laughs> and then like before I was paralyzed on a horse accident, um, <laughs> yeah, thing. I heard a voice from up above, like way before I changed my name, like, um, you know, no, like I wasn't supposed to jump over the, the fence. And I think a lot of us hear those other dimensional voices. Some people call it instinct. Some people call it guts. I mean, in those cases, when it's not my voice and I'm not hallucinating, and I was, you know, to me, I was clear-headed driving in the car. And I argued back, you know, how am I, you know, people are going to think I'm crazy. So I, this is really the first time I've ever told the story besides with a few close friends. But, you know, because when people say, is it a God-given name? I say yes, because <laughs> it's not my, <laughs> so... And I think it's it's a it's a wonderful story, and I have to say it is totally not what I expected. <laughs> it's, but I love it. It's just it's just wow. That's quite amazing. Well, talking about indigenous cultures, you know, like the Maasai warriors. There's two areas we have it in Christianity. If you ever open a Bible, you know, God will give someone they. Started off with the name Sal, and then they became Paul, or you know, there's like this. It's almost like an initiation transformation. And the Maasai Maasai warriors, they go through the same thing where they're given another name when they go through an initiation or like a coming of age. So I feel like I went through a coming of age. You know, like, and my before my name meant heel, when you spell my name backwards, Leah was heel. And I went through a whole period of my life where I did a lot of healing work with myself and also with other people. So I did the healing arts on humans. And then I got tired of humans and I worked on, not tired, but, you know, humans have lots of layers where we store lots of things in our cell memories and it takes a lot of work to unlock them because they get frozen almost in our cells because our cells are surrounded with water molecules. So if we hold a thought and an, an image quite strongly, it takes a while to unlock that. And then when you work on an animal, an animal will tell you exactly what's going on because they're living more present moment to present moment. So... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now like, you're like, like oh no <laughs> <laughs> well I, I can only thank you for telling us all that that's amazing absolutely brilliant when i emailed you uh um, i i just asked if there was anything in particular you you would like to talk about other than what i was going to ask you and your answer was Yes, marine and planetary conservation is my life. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Well, I guess, you know, when you love animals and you love the planet, it's hard not to incorporate conservation in that. And so wherever we're at, whether we use photography, writing, even cooking, even the way we eat, you know, our diet, um, storytelling. I think in any, like wherever someone's at in their lives, they can do acts of love. They can do acts of compassion. They can do outreach that makes a difference because 
you know, doing dolphin research for most of my life, you know, I started when I was a child and really from a dolphin epiphany, it was almost like it chose me. I wasn't going, I'm going to do, you know, it wasn't like the, you know, the, the name thing about me wanting to change my name. It was like me in a really volatile home life where it was unpredictable violence. And so my solstice was nature and animals. And I remember, and my studies. So I read all the time books, you know, just escapism, right? To go into someone else's world. And I went with my mother. I would like tag along. There's four of um, us kids, but I would go to the City College Library. I was like 14, you know, going on 15. While my mother was in class, I'd just be in the library going through all these books. Well, I was up on the third level. And Roger Payne's Songs of the Humpback Whale. Yeah. <laughs> so, 1977. I'm listening to those with the headphones, you know, the old-fashioned, like, cassette tape. You know? <laughs> and something unlocked in me. And I call it now, now I understand it science-wise. But back then, I didn't understand it because we have three brains. Most people just only talk about the thinking brain and the feeling brain, our logical and our creative brain. But we all also have an ancient brain, and we actually make a lot of our decisions from the ancient part. People get very defensive. Case in point, I know I'm backtracking a little bit, but say you go up to someone and they're smoking in a non-smoking area. There's a big sign right behind them. And that happens a lot here in Hawaii because everyone wants to smoke here. And I, during the last six years, I've really uncovered a lot of questions I had about interspecies communication with dolphins in relationships to humans and how to bridge that. And the part about the ancient brain is the ancient memory of smoking is actually sacred. With indigenous cultures, we did that as an act of peace, as an act of connection. We shared the peace pipe. It was a sharing of breath. Nowadays, you take it to modern day. So this is coming from our ancient brain. We're super protective of the memories in our ancient part. So when you go to, up to someone and say, did you realize, you know, I'm allergic to cigarette smoke, <laughs> like closes up my throat. Uh, you're smoking and non-smoking, could you like go, you know, like maybe over there, you know, please. They'll get pissed off, they'll get defensive, you know, and who are you, you know, Howley telling me what to do. It's like a sign right there, you know, it's just you're affecting everyone around us, you know, we're waiting for the bus. Um, and I realize it's because the sacred, you know, connection of breath is that's what they're defending and it comes from our ancient memories so what happened in that floor you know over 40 years ago was that that one humpback whale song unlocked something in my ancient brain where i felt like i was accepted for who i was loved connected and then it was just like i could not I found every book I could find on interspecies communication with dolphins and whales. And I ended up reading all of John Lilly's books, like, you know, within like a couple weeks and coming out to my parents out of my room and saying, I'm going to do interspecies communication with dolphins with my life. They were just like, who is this crazy child that we have? But I, it was just something that felt right to me. It felt, like home and because I was in you know something that was so I wanted to find kind of my own truths about what is love what is our relationship to life um you know I have since then like had conversations with my dad who was the violent one in our house right like why did he hit us and you know like I've gone past the whole like forgiveness thing but you know it's amazing how animal communications and can really help us with our people problems, you know, help us in our relationships because we're part of the animal kingdom. And I think 
when I talk about doing marine and ocean conservation for planetary care, it's about having planetary peace. My dolphin work is almost Zen physics. If you, you know, talk to the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama today, he's all about the cognitive sciences and the actual science of physics and how we're related to the universe, how we're related to each other, and really our philosophy, the way we see the world. See, I, I think there's two ways of seeing it, at least two ways. The SEE way of seeing the world, or SEA. And when you do the arts, like music, or photography, or filmmaking, or storytelling, or cooking, or gardening, we get to see differently dimensionally, the way the ocean is about life, the way the ocean takes care of us. You know, we're all, it's not a coincidence that we're like born to match our planet. You know, to me, that's a divine connection, you know, divine creation. When we're a baby, the way we're born, we're born exactly like a dolphin is in the aquatic womb. And then our constitution Water to body mass, 71 to 29% water to body mass. I just think that's amazing. And then our breath is like an ocean wave. It's courtesy of the ocean. You know, our blood moves like the ocean. And then we have saltwater tears that we share with a lot of animals. <laughs> I know, I get so excited about this work because I feel like it can help so many people I mean, it's helped me, but I, I see it as helping kind of our planet, you know, not only survive, but thrive, just the interconnectivity of it all. Yeah, it's, it's, I just love your enthusiasm. I mean, there is so much bad happening out there, and it's a constant struggle to, to try and preserve and conserve and make things right. And to be able to keep up enthusiasm like you're showing is, is, is it takes a lot of strength. It's, it's um, admirable. Absolutely. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, thank you for even doing these interviews because see storytelling, that's the beautiful thing. You know, all these people say, Oh, storytelling is the first form of communication and it's the oldest. And there's actually one notch more, which is picture talking what animals do, what you're doing with your art. You know, we learned picture talking before we learned the verbal words. And that's why I love when you talk with indigenous cultures like Native Americans or Aboriginal Australians or the Maoris or the Hawaiians, they talk about language. But before language came along, it was picture talking. We conveyed something by drawing it or you know, creating something that was visual, like a picture. And I saw your interview with Jet, the photographer, the wildlife photographer, and he talked about that dolphin story about, oh, you know, trying to get the perfect dolphin photo. And, you know, it was like he finally gave up, right, and said, I surrender. And then all of a sudden, out of the three dolphins, one came over and said, is this what you want? I'm right here, right for you, right? Take a picture, you know, get your camera. I'm waiting. <laughs> and what he was doing was picture talking with the dolphin. It's something that we do naturally, but most people do it unconsciously. When I talk about like my dolphin work in the cognitive science, I'm wanting to bring it forward so it's a conscious thing. Like people get all scared about invisible energies or even like me, I've been cautious about sharing that dove story because it talks about an invisible energy, an invisible dimension of like God talking with me, right? Like when St. Francis, you know, talked with the animals, people thought, oh, you know, that's like he was pushed out of like the groups that he was really kind of a part of. Um, I know, I guess, so excited. And then, like, I just had a thing. So back to, to Jet's story about that. 
the conscious part is this saying that we picture talk and we do that naturally. It's not something that we have to force. It's like when he stopped trying and just like allowed him to say, you know, this is my request to you. I would really like a, you know, a picture. Then the dolphin, you know, responded because true it's absolutely yeah. true it's uh, i find communication the best communications either with people or other species is without any sort of spoken word at all it's and, and when you talk about or, or people hear about oh we're learning to communicate with dolphins you know in the back of their minds are saying oh we'll have a conversation it's not about that. It's about feelings. It's about presence. It's about awareness. And so, some of the best interactions I have with people is when we don't say a word. And it's the same when you go underwater. If, if whether you're, you're with a dolphin, a whale, or, or, or a goby, whatever, something small, you communicate silently with your body language, with the way that you know, your whole being presents itself. And that is just so exciting to experience. I, 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 can't, I can't think of an, a, a better experience in these worlds than to, to actually communicate in that way with other species. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, so you understand. I think when you devote your life doing the arts and doing arts that actually talk, you know, like how they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, the, when I was talking about the invisible energies, we live in an invisible universe because gravity, you and I are both sitting because of an invisible energy. We're not floating about, even though that would be quite lovely. You know, <laughs> we get to do that when we're underneath the ocean. But, you know, gravity is an invisible energy. So is the electromagnetic field that surrounds our planet. And so we're really a mini-me version of our planet. We have this water to body mass, but that changes as we get old, older. And you know what we start to lose when we get older? Yes. Tell me. Buoyancy. Buoyancy. The water ratio of us. So I'm trying, I guess in my work, I want to bring the buoyancy back in people's lives. You know, that childlike innocence, the levity, the let's be more like water. And let's talk about how water is so a part of us in our cells, in our breath, in our blood, in our tears, in our communication. You know, the, this form of communication called what telecommunication right sending wireless messages over vast distances this technology we've used for 50 years whereas dolphins and whales have used this technology how we're talking over zoom for 50 million years so when you just take that so when people talk about is a dolphin intelligent or you know what happened when i was 14 going on 15 with all those books I've read that John Lilly wrote was, he's doing it backwards. Why teach the dolphin our language instead of learning their language back to us? It was just like, it seemed so apparent, but it was like, you know, so in career day, you know, I'm in junior high, you know, and then they're going, what do you want to do? Interspecies communication with dolphins. Oh, captivity? No, wild. Because I read about John putting electrodes up to dolphins' brains to monitor them. All this captivity, captivity, captivity. Captivity, you know, takes away the very essence of what makes a dolphin a dolphin, which is wild, free, community, family, you know, feeling the ocean waves and currents, you know, swimming 40, 50 miles a day. Freedom what we all want in our lives, you know? So when we think we have to control, what the biggest, a few messages that I get while working with the animal kingdom and dolphins is really, it's no longer about control. It's about consciousness. And we are to learn how to put the, the human 
the word humane back into the word humanity. Because in our very own language, we have human in the word humanity. You know, humane, being humane. What, what does that mean to each of our lives? I think each of us have to ask ourselves and say, you know, it's like me going under the water. It's not just with dolphins. You know, like spending a month trying to take a picture of a blowfish because I had never seen one that was white with white polka dots. And I thought, oh, how cool is this, right? So they're very timid. You know, I was like, you can trust me. And my GoPro, you know, I use the basic of equipment. The GoPro is on a pole, so it looks like a spear gun, right? So even though blowfish are um, poisonous to eat unless you know how to prepare them, people still spearfish them. And this was the, the whole experience of taking a month for me to get closer and closer because they live in their home, like their territory, right? And then eventually, I remember the last kind of week of this month, the blowfish, because there's no zoom on a, on a GoPro. At least there wasn't the GoPro 3 that I was using or 4 that I was using, you know, and there was no like screen. So you have to, I remember you asking Jet about what makes, you know, doing photography under the water so lovely. And it's really just, for me, experiencing the moment, like the interaction, and then hopefully capturing something. So I kind of use it as a like recording the moment, but I don't want to lose the moment of the connection that I have with the blowfish. So I'm kind of just like, you know, it's like balancing between both worlds. It ended up happening during this last week of the month that I got super close to the blowfish and the eyes and the expression. It was almost like you could see eyelashes on the eyes. It was so sweet. I took the photos. Then a couple of days later, I went back to the same spot to swim because it's kind of like in my octopus teacher, You've seen the movie, right? The recent one. That's yep. been my life, you know, but I've never had someone documenting my life with different animals. Like I've had those experiences with a certain sea turtle, like um, Bruno, you know, and then I've had, you know, or a lily, like different, you know, that. But with this blowfish, what ended up happening was a couple days later, I'm swimming. And part of when I swim I'm bringing in plastics, discarded fishing line, you know, bottles, hair, you know, ties, goggles, glasses, everything I find in the ocean floor, you know, so I'm snorkeling around and I see a little glint that doesn't look like, you know, meant to be there. So I'm like tying all these things onto my bathers while I'm swimming along. So I see this long green fishing line and I'm like, oh, bloody hell. Like to me, it's like an interruption of like my, my fun time in the water. So I follow this green line. It was horrific. At the end of this green line was my blowfish friend. And the expression on the blowfish, it was like, he had the same expression of what we would look like if we were fighting for our life. And I kept on diving down to try to get the hook out of its mouth. Right. And then the fisherman was on the sand beach. Like he really shouldn't even been fishing there, but there's no one regulating because it's actually a sanctuary. You know, it's supposed to be deemed a sanctuary area, but you know, he's fishing there. And so I kept on diving down to try to get the hook out. And then the fisherman noticed that I was like in line with his fishing. And he, underneath the water, I watched this blowfish being pulled. And I swam into shore and I came out of the water like crying. But you couldn't tell because I was wet, right? And I walk right up to the young guy who was the fisherman. And I'm like, you just, you know, killed my friend. And he goes, well, you didn't have to bite my line. And I was like, this was his home. And he didn't throw it back in knowing that he wasn't even edible. And I think that's the kind of mentality about control versus consciousness. The beautiful thing, I posted that photo. That's why how art can be art, artivism, like activism, but you use your art. 
because I posted that photo about that relationship, you know, took me a, a month to gain this blowfish trust. And during that last week of its life, he got caught by a fisherman who didn't even, he didn't even need him for food. I mean, we have groceries full of food to choose from. You didn't really have to destroy someone's life. And I think that's the difference of, I haven't eaten fish since that day of watching that fish have the same emotions we have on our face. You know, I've been a vegetarian most of my life, you know, since I like was 14, 15, but then I changed to veganism because I watched that fish have the same emotions of, of what we would go through. And then someone sent me this beautiful BBC documentary about a male blowfish, how he blow, he spends, he spends a week not eating because he's trying to attract a female. How many men do that for, for female humans, you know? And he makes this beautiful mandala in the sand. And I'm like, is that not a thinking fish? You know, someone who designs mandala with their breath, blowing this beautiful mandala, bringing shells, you know, so the, the female will find it attractive to come and lay her eggs in the middle of the mandala. I mean, it's such a, that's how films can move us. That's how our photography can change people's perspectives. So, you know, it really uplifted me to see that documentary about how intelligent a blowfish is. And most people brush aside fish of not having a brain to have feelings. Well, you know, when we think, when I talk about we have three brains, you know, a thinking brain, a feeling brain, maybe they have more of a feeling brain than we activate ours to use. I think you only have to spend a little time underwater <laughs> on a reef anywhere. And it becomes so obvious. I mean, it always amazes me how people they go on their dive holidays or et cetera, et cetera. And they kind of tick off this list of species that they've seen. And they've never spent more than a few seconds with each. And the amount of things they're missing, just by what you're saying, um, you know, you miss all the behavior, you miss the interactions with fish with each other. You can see feeling, you can see apprehension, you can see fear, um, you can see pain, and you can see contentment as well in a, in a lot of uh, fish. You know, it's, it's there in those aspects, they really are no different from us at all. And uh, I always find that's, that's, again, one of the huge pleasures of this communication thing. To, to, to other species. I find it stunning. The, just pulling up on, what, uh, on a couple of things that you covered there um, with eating fish and stuff. I mean, likewise, I, haven't, I had a similar experience. <laughs> Something just turned me and I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? I, 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 I can't eat, eat seafood at all anymore. Um, but much of our natural world and everything is being lost to the consumer because simply people, they don't really investigate or know where their food is coming from uh, 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 and how it gets there. And then as a slight extension of that, um, people who do know and care are labeled in the media as environmentalists. And when, when they say environmentalists, they also slightly bracket, like they're slightly weird people. You know? <laughs> and in truth, they're the only people, we are the only people that actually care about the planet we're living on. And yet when they talk about industrial fishing, logging, mining, it's, it's with a little more respect. you know. And this is how the media react to this and, and and i find it quite extraordinary how how those the the those things are representative um of, of how most people feel i don't know how to get environmentalism to be a popular culture within the masses have you got any thoughts on that um 
I talk a little bit about that in my book, Dolphin Talk, and it's about a value system. Say, for instance, you book a hotel to come here with your family to Hawaii, right? And you want an ocean view versus a view over the garage. Do you think that's more money? Normally it is. That price point is deemed higher. You want to buy some real estate. Oh, beachfront, ocean view, you know, thousands of dollars more. Do we put that same set of values on what the ocean gives us? Like I once found, you know, it's like people <laughs> ask me, can you find this for me? Because for whatever reason, my magnetite in my cells is attracted to treasures. <laughs> so I found two men's wedding rings <laughs> buried in the ocean, <laughs> um, both the same size. And I was like, thank you, God, for my husband-to-be. Um, but one engraved said, I love you more. And it felt like the ocean saying to me, I love you more, more than you can repay, more that, that you can ever give back, more than you can ever imagine. And I felt like that was a reminder to me that it's how we value things. And unless more, you know, companies come up, I mean, being in conservation, caring about the planet for so long, and now people are using it as like jargons or like, I'm an an advocate now what because you put your name onto something you know have you even worked on it you know have it's like the blood sweat and tears and something there's something to actually live it um most of my life i haven't documented you know i haven't had a camera with me you know a lot of things i discovered from empirical evidence of just experiencing it having wild dolphins show me things in the ocean throwing out trash a dolphin, and I said, how can I help you? You know, because they talk telepathic and communication, right? Phone. This is how they're talking. And um, a dolphin came up to me and threw a piece of trash, plastic trash. This was in the 80s. So we've been polluting the ocean <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's thankfully more people are waking up. You know, it, it, there's, I was thinking about four or five movies people could watch what people have you know it's almost like i talk about dolphins and our dna coding because there are 64 codes in us that relate to a lot of things in life sunflowers um that there's like a sacred geometry of so many things in life, the curl of a wave, the curl of a seahorse, you know, that I actually went to a school in New Zealand, I mean, New Mexico, that was taught by Drumvalo, the same guy who co coined the flower of life. So this was during kind of my time that I was just doing interspecies communication researching, but I was in the mountains of Colorado, working with John Denver in the Windstar Symposiums with the Russian exchange program. Well, before that happened, I had been studying water birthing with Igor Tchaikovsky. And he did, you know, early research about humans being birthed in water with dolphins. So I was doing all of that as like extra credit in college, <laughs> you know, like, will you go in this isolation chamber? So I can, you know, and then I went to Australia and I was like a manager of a flotation tank center for a year. So imagine floating for a year. You know, the one beautiful thing that John Lilly did was he designed the flotation tank to give people an opportunity to be, to float, to be free of gravity, to be free of sound, um, external noises. And then your brain, like 45 minutes in a tank of 800 pounds of Epsom salts and 15 inches of water and the water temperature have you floated no nope. not yet not oh. yet <laughs> you floated when you're in the ocean but not of course yes i mean yeah. i mean uh, um certainly 
been weightless and is fantastic, but I've never been yeah. in a flotation tank. Yeah, so you're doing... I assume. But yes and no. I mean, those, oh, no. those rooms, you can slide open the... Okay. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be pitch dark because I remember I brought my mother into one of those tanks. She's like talking to the other tank going, honey, can I leave this? I'm like, do whatever makes you happy. You know, she's like, it's stinging. Yeah, there's a lot of Epsom salts in there. Don't open your eyes, you know, because you're like buoyant and like the line of water is like here. So you're not supposed to be having a chat while you're floating. You know, and she's, you know so I was taking someone who doesn't even even know kind of that world my mom doesn't really like the ocean you know she used to take us to the beach but she's not like you know her version of camping is being inside like you know a maxi van you know with the fold-out bed you know like she's just not like that but inside a tank is how why people love scuba diving so much why people love free diving so much when you spend time floating your brain waves change to the meditative brain waves. You're allowed toxins that we keep in our cells and our body get pulled out with the salt water. You know, it's really therapeutic. People would come into this um, center that myself and two other ladies, we managed <laughs> these two different centers in Sydney, Australia. I used to take a ferry across to one of them. It was so much fun. Um, we used to have all week all night floats where we'd float all night which is kind of intense <laughs> because it's changing the way that you think it's unlocking more of your dna because what in, ends up happening is it changes the neuro pathways of how thoughts and feelings get transmitted see every day our brain and our heart has 40,000 neurons going back and forth People go, oh, you know, my heart's not connected to my brain. Uh, hello, science. You talk to a cardiologist, they'll say your heart and your brain is constantly in communication with the 40,000 neurons each day. Whether you want to be conscious about it or not, you know, that is your choice. But the thing with floating is 45 minutes in that state is equal to an eight-hour sleep. People would come out. It was flight attendants, business people, um, you know, people that were all different types, walks of life. They came in looking one way, they would leave looking a completely different way. I mean, like melt. It was like this <sighs> peace. Uh, you know, that's probably like the a, a peace, almost like an acceptance of like, this is life, you know, right, right here, right now. And I think that's how you feel when you come out of the water, like after a scuba dive or after snorkeling, or you just feel like, ah, you know, life is good. Yeah, you do. You're absolutely right. Until that moment, have you ever dived in a, a dry suit and stuff in cold water? Um, I, not in a dry suit. I got certified off the Great Barrier Reef in Australia back in the oh, 80s. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, the, only so reason we I the only reason I mention it is because it is so heavy <laughs> <laughs> and there is so much weight. And it's so that all that pleasure uh, that I, I feel right up until my feet touch the sand or the rocks and then it becomes pain <laughs> or have to walk up the beach or whatever <laughs> with all this huge amount of gear and for about half an hour it just takes away all that loveliness that i just experienced in the water <laughs> but, you gotta bring uh, a cart down it doesn't quite work <laughs> like that <laughs> i know but it's almost like a metaphor to how we live our lives when you think about the weight that we carry. See, our brain, that's the thing about invisible energies. There's, you know, cold and hot nuclear. There's the electromagnetic. There's gravity. And our brain is constantly balancing ourselves with gravity. So we, when we get tired, it's because we're always trying to balance that invisible energy of us 
living on land. I've worked with a lot of challenged children and adults. And to me, it's like working with people get also crazy about when I say like a wild animal, but a wild animal to me is someone that's in tune with their environment. A wild animal means that they're in harmony. They're, and when I've worked with challenged children, they don't have all the protective filters that so-called normal people have and able to take in information, sounds, light, um, activity. And it gets overwhelming like to them on different levels. Or like if you've worked with someone who's blind, like I used to work with this horse riding program in Nashville, Tennessee called Saddle Up. And you, I used to take this one blind boy out around sunset and then he goes, can you describe the way the sunset looks? And so as I described it, you know what he did? Just held his head up so he could feel the sun touching him, moving, changing of all the ways. And it was so beautiful to actually watch him experience the sunset. Because when people's, you know, I think that, back to your question about how can people shift it's the small stories that we share through our films like my octopus teacher or sea spiracy or the cove that people can see how interconnected we are that there's not a big gap between how oh i brought in something from outside oh for you it has to do that has to do with our DNA. Oh, really? My goodness. Oh, oh, oh. Yes, a leaf. Okay. Now, these are, these are abundant everywhere, right? Yeah. Trees, yeah. you know, bushes. Even in the ocean, there's lots of leaves. This is the gift from dolphins and whales for us to realize that we are exactly like a leaf, our DNA. We're a transmitter and receiver of light and sound. The sole purpose of a leaf is what? Regeneration. Regeneration. To go back into the soil and regenerate our planet. How are we doing that in our own lives? Like we treat leaves like they're pests. Leaf blowers. I mean, I hear leaf blowers almost every day of the week because we want to control nature. We take away the leaf's sole purpose. Now, if our DNA is exactly like a leaf, transmitter and receiver of light and sound, our sole purpose is to regenerate, just like so many other animals. You know, like a sea turtle is a peaceful recycler. A whale is a recycler out in the ocean, bringing nutrients from the ground. There's so many animals, the tiniest coral reefs, corals are animals. Their sole purpose is to regenerate our planet, give us oxygen. You know, like people, I think the thing is, that's why I think what I'm trying to use is my art to connect the dots, like how Aboriginals, Australians, they paint all those dots because it's all of our connections, all of our song lines through the planet to each other, our forms of our channels of communication to really remind us we need, it's almost like a guide of remembering how connected we are. It's, you know, it's like, it's a really simple thing. It's a really like when I got this kind of, um, reminder it was like how do i describe dolphins and whales with one leaf and you know when you look up a leaf it basically says that and when i look at the way humanity is treating leaves they're not allowing leaves to go back into the into the soil into regeneration you know and i think it's like in hawaii here they have trucks that go by that say clean energy gas Fracking's not clean energy. Why poison the very water that gives us life? 
why why dump and pump you know 50 to 200 forms of chemicals into water that goes into our rivers our lakes you know so i just think that everyone can start at home being an activist just from the products that you buy like are they biodegradable everything returns back to the sea including you and me right we all become part of the the cycle of regeneration so there's a movie a beautiful movie <laughs> called kiss the ground and there's a there's a line in there that says keep poop in the loop you know whereas you know when you think about cows out in the pasture mushrooms grow in their patties and mushrooms are like if you've ever watched that that fantastic fungi movie it's another documentary it it does the shows how the fungi are like the circuit boards across our planet helping to regenerate helping to give new life helping to communicate so all of us are communicating it's not just humans who are communicating it's the animal kingdom it's nature and i think that's exciting to think wow everyone's talking it's like it's whether you know oh am i going to listen to that it's almost like we decide what we're going to tune into but the beautiful thing about music like why when i lived in nashville tennessee and i worked a lot in the film industry music became the sea to me because music helps us with the same thing that nature does it helps unlock dna when we do heart forward dynamics things that we love gardening cooking you know making love doing the arts photography writing all that stuff it it stimulates it touches those circuits that are coding of our dna because most scientists will say we're only using 20 of our 64 codes we don't really need the other 44 and i just say no we do those 44 codes are just in a sleepless slumber until we wake them up that's why people go i couldn't express something until i felt that song like why that song moved me so much or why people watch a movie because it's unlocking the dna that they can't get to that that part of that coding in them that they know that movie will hold the key that's why it's so powerful using the arts for artism art i can't even say the word art venism <laughs> you know activism <laughs> with art and absolutely got it yeah that is it's it's been i'm going to have to wrap it there it's I, i have to say i've talked to you or you've talked to me longer than anybody else and it's like the time has gone really short it's it's i just yeah love love listening to you um thank you again for taking mm. time to to talk to talk to us it's been brilliant mm it's been lovely being here and it's exciting to share stories and i hope that you make a trip either here or new zealand i'm working on a new project called born aquatic and i'm pitching it um to the discovery and the explorer club um oh good luck with that. yeah because i yeah. want to to kind of blend the stuff of the connections with indigenous cultures animals you know dolphins and whales you know those people and modern day so hopefully that will come to fruition and then um i'll let you know and you can come to new zealand to do some filming have you filmed the sperm whales before we we say goodbye have you yes you yes have? i have I, I've, i've done quite a few sperm whales yeah uh I, one of my most exciting dives was with sperm whales <laughs> where um off uh, sulawesi where's that indonesia Oh okay. Yeah. So next time we have a talk you can tell me all about the sperm whales because they're the ancient keepers. Uh, they hold they hold like our records of the universe. You know, people think why they're like 
like this, they say, oh, they're sleeping. No, they're, they're meditating because they have a lot of magnetite in their blubber. It's like they're balancing our planet. So. Oh, my um, gosh. There's so many things to learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I'm not doing it as like, I'm doing it from a science point of view of like being a, re I'm always skeptical. I want to find the science to support my work. I, I don't want to be seen as like a new ager. I'm like, I'm very practical about things. If like someone, you know, shows me something like a dragonfly or like a dolphin or any of that stuff, you know, like that whole concept like of dolphins being afraid of sharks. I was out swimming with a family of bottlenose. Two sharks were with them the entire time. You know, it's like, you know, mis misconceptions. So, yeah, no, anyway. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. And um, you take great care now. You too. Aloha. Um, bye for now.